Welcome to London Calling EU, a podcast from the EU delegation here in the UK, in which we look at this new post-Brexit relationship with a new lens and demonstrate that there is life beyond Brexit. Last time we looked at cuisine and how the UK and the EU have influenced each other's foods and restaurants. This time we're going to focus on love. Now, I admit that when we talk about EU-UK relations, love might not be the first word which comes to mind. But while relations at a political level have been tense at times, things have been more successful at an individual level. And it's no exaggeration to talk about an Anglo-European love story. Tonight, thousands of mixed nationality couples will celebrate St. Valentine's Day together, including your host, who is married to an Estonian lady. 730,000 children were born to European mothers in England and Wales from 2008 to 2019, among them two of my children. Estonian mother and Irish dad. By 2019, a little more than half of EU nationals had lived in Britain for a decade or more. This is why they were reluctant to leave after Brexit and many Europeans arrived in the UK post-Brexit. Now, we didn't manage to find an exact number for Anglo-European couples currently living in the UK, but it's fair to say that there are quite a few. Now, before we turn to our guests, we've gathered a number of real-life stories from Anglo-European couples who have met over the years. Blanca came to the UK from Valencia on the Erasmus programme as part of her five-year degree in architecture. In the kitchen of her student lodging, she met an English fellow student and soon they were dating. Well, she never went back to Valencia and now they are married with two children living in Richmond. We also heard from Per, who came to the UK from a small Swedish village as an au pair when he was still a teenager. He had never left his village before and spoke little English. Well, he never left the UK since then and is now happily living in Bristol with his partner, Joseph. Thank you also to Raphael for getting in touch and sharing his story. He came to the UK in the 1970s with long hair, flower shirts and the dream of becoming the new John Lennon. I'm not sure that he succeeded in that dream, but he met his wife, Caroline, playing the guitar in a nightclub in Soho. They've been living together for the last 40 years and now own a vintage music shop in Edinburgh. I got to know a warm, vibrant, colourful, multicultural society, the likes of which I had never experienced before. I saw people from different walks of life going out together, enjoying life, breathing freedom. I immersed myself in the melting pot of cultures, traditions, and music indeed. And I truly fell in love with this city and this country. Now, that was Ursula von der Leyen, the uh, president of the European Commission, talking about when she fell in love with London when she was a young student at the London School of Economics. Now, let's turn to our guests who have all personal ties to the EU in some way, shape or form. Monique Hawkins is the policy and research officer with the Three Million Group, which represents the estimated three million EU nationals living in the UK, a number which was an underestimate, as we will discover. She's also a European national, Dutch, with a British husband. Robert Wright is from the Financial Times, whose daughter was actually born in Hungary. Marina Fernandez-Renno is a senior researcher at the Migration Observatory at the University of Oxford. And Emma Beddington is a British writer and Guardian columnist who spent many years in Brussels with her French husband and now lives in Yorkshire with her family. In the pre-Brexit days, she used to be the travel restaurant critic for the Eurostar magazine Metropolitan, Metropolitan, 
She wrote a lot about our topic and will provide a witty and hopefully original perspective. They've all got personal news stories of love across national boundaries. So let's start with yours, Monique, from the Three Million Group. Hi, thanks for having me on. Yeah, I was really, really keen to come and study in the Netherlands. I remember doing a deal with my late father that if I earned enough money to pay for the first year of uni in the UK, then he would pay for the rest. So in 1984, I came over having worked for a whole year to finance it. And luckily, after one year, the Erasmus arrangements kicked in. So the rest of it was very much better. And I've never left, fell in love with the country, eventually fell in love with man, got married here, got two children who are both British dual, British Dutch, and still totally love the country, even though, of course, was very, very upset by, by Brexit when it happened. Well, we will deal with some of that in a moment. Emma, tell us your story. So after I left school, I went to work for six months in a school in France as an assistant. And my husband, future, long in the future husband, was working there doing his civil military service. That was back in 1995. And we sort of long distance dated for a few years. In 97, he moved to London, studied there. And we lived together in London until oof, 2005, four, something like that, moved to Paris, moved back to London, moved to Brussels, spent 12 years very happily in Brussels, and moved back to the UK in 2018. And we have two sons who are dual French British nationals, who are now 19 and 17. Did you guys date in French or date in English when you first met? French. It's always been French. Um, my husband, I think his chat-up line was that he wanted to practice his English. And so we went out to a cafe and he practiced this horrible, horrible English on me for about two minutes. And then I think he, a little longer, maybe 15 minutes. And then he sort of said that he realized that every time he was missing a word, I would just sort of supply it in French. And he realized that in fact, things might be a bit simpler if he gave up on trying to practice his English on me. So, uh, and now I think we speak like a horrible hybrid of French structure. And then whenever uh, the English expression is better, we just stick it in there. So it's horrible. It's not, it's not a real language. Non a peu que the mustard. <laughs> Marina, tell me your story, if you have one. I was born in Spain. I'm a Spanish national. During my PhD, I stayed for a year in London. Um, I really like it, actually. And then I moved back to the UK in 2018 for a job here at the Migration Observatory. And I've been living here since. So I think I will continue living here for the next years. Now, Robert Wright from the Financial Times, can I bring you in? How come your daughter was born in Hungary, Robert? Many years ago, I was the Financial Times' correspondent in Budapest. So I lived there from 1999 till 2003. So I had the privilege of watching Hungary's process of accession to the European Union, which was an interesting process in lots of ways. I was there during the first government of Viktor Orban, who's obviously prime minister again now, saw some of the formation of his political project at that time. My wife and I were in our 20s at that point, late 20s, came to the point when we decided to start a family. So our daughter was born 20 years ago in Budapest in the Hungarian State Railways Hospital. Um, Does she speak Hungarian? Well, we left when she was 18 months old. So uh, at one point before she left Hungary, I think she spoke Hungarian about as well as she did English. She didn't speak either tremendously well at that point, but she definitely seemed to understand Hungarian as well as she did 
English. Uh, unfortunately, I'm, I'm the lone Hungarian speaker in the family now. Anna doesn't remember too much about that. She's now at uh, Cardiff University studying computer science. She's going through life constantly explaining to people why this person who is a British citizen has British parents, why she was born in Budapest, a place that she doesn't particularly remember. So that's our little gift to her. Yeah, she should do some sort of laminated card to hand to people at parties. Yes. Why hasn't there been the much feared or much anticipated Brexitus, i.e. the number of European nationals living in Britain rose from 3.2 million in 2015 to 3.6 million in 2019, despite the talk of Brexit Britain as an unwelcoming place? Why has that been the case? And to what extent do you think this shows strength and resilience of Anglo-European couples? When you start looking at this, it just becomes clear how complicated the picture is. When you speak to people, you hear there were all kinds of different things happened. There was a bunch of people came in because essentially the door was closing. So they were worried that if they didn't get into the UK, it would become far more complicated in the future and they had to establish the residence here. So one heard stories of young people from Poland and places like that, that perhaps at the moment, there are quite a lot of people leaving them, thought that by comparison, Britain sounded quite a good place to be and they wanted to establish residence here. So one saw people coming in, but at the same time, there were people going out because, say, they'd saved up lots of money in the UK and they wanted to go home and set up a business or retire in Hungary or somewhere like that. So I think there's been an awful lot of churn. And at the same time, the UK has a labour market shortage. So that's going to keep bringing people in. Paradoxically, many Europeans are becoming British citizens because of Brexit. Uh, They're concerned that they might have lost their settled status if they leave Britain. And as that was especially the case during the first pandemic, wasn't it? Do you have any numbers on this phenomenon? And um, these people will be allowed to vote in general elections and referendums in future. I wonder what impact that might have on British society and British politics in years to come. Well, I think it's pretty difficult to say what impact it's going to have on British politics. I've never seen any statistics for this phenomenon, but really what it underlines is just that there has been this big sorting out as a result of the Brexit process. Before, it was an incredibly casual process. People could come and go. There were absolutely no restrictions on European people coming or going. We were discussing before the recording how the UK and Ireland are the only two countries that didn't even require you to register with the local town hall. So really, everybody suddenly had to get their papers in order. And I think, not terribly surprising, that's led to a rise in British citizenship. What effect will it have on referenda and and elections in the future? Well, before 2016, I would have said that the UK would never take the step of voting to leave the European Union, given how embedded it becoming that. I'm probably out of the job of making predictions about these things. Mm-hmm. But clearly, the UK is becoming, has become an incredibly multicultural society. If you live in London, that's particularly evident. The one thing I would say is that the Brexit process has led to an evening out of the immigration rules in the UK for people from every country. So it's become much more difficult if you're a European to come to the UK to live and work, which will obviously be a matter of real pain and and regret for many of the people listening to this. But it's become a little bit easier if you're from a country like India, Pakistan, whatever. And so I think there's going to be an evening out. So we might see 
I think if the UK economy continues to generate the same number of jobs, it's, it's continued to be a fairly attractive place, whatever the politics, but it's possibly going to become a, a more widely international, less European place in the number of people it brings in, if that makes sense. It, it does, yeah. Obviously, it depends on whether they meet the uh, immigration criteria, which has been set out by the Home Secretary, Priti Patel. But uh, as you say, there could be uh, fewer Europeans and more uh, non-Europeans coming in if employers want it. Another interesting stat, Robert Wright from the Financial Times, Europeans in the UK tend to be younger than average. Overall, 19% of British people are aged 65 or older. By the end of March last year, only 2% of applications for settled status from Europeans came in that age group, the over 65 group. What implications do you think that has? And uh, will Britain be even more European in years to come? That was one of the big attractions of opening the UK's doors to people from mainland Europe, that the people tended to be young, so it dealt, at least for the time being, with some of the issues about being an ageing society. Suddenly the UK created for itself a much younger profile of people who could help to care for the older people, who could pay for pensions in future. So that has been a good thing for the UK, I think a lot of people would say, and, and I think it will probably continue to be a good thing as, as those people settle down and have children and, and those people work their way through the system. But what I would say about the EU settlement scheme and the relatively low number of older people who've applied for it is that this highlights one real worry about that scheme, which is that the number of older people applying possibly does not reflect the number of older people out there. There's been a concern all along. We've talked about how there are lots of couples in the UK, either like yourself, people from different nationalities or possibly people who've come together from one country. And a lot of those people have brought granny over to look after the kids. And often the grandmother will be living somewhere, perhaps speaking only Romanian, not really mixing in society. And there's definitely a worry that a lot of those people are not registered for the EU settlement scheme. And that is probably a worry. So yes, the people skew younger Yes, there aren't that many applications from older people. That does not necessarily mean, unfortunately, that there aren't quite a lot of older people now slightly hidden from the system, living in people's homes, bringing up children and possibly unaware of quite what a problem they potentially face down the road. Okay, well, let's go back to Monique. How has Brexit affected those European relationships on St. Valentine's Day? I was really, really devastated after the referendum. I was surprised by the strength of my reaction, really. And my first reaction was, I'm now finally going to actually apply for British citizenship. In the long past, I couldn't have done it because the Netherlands wouldn't allow dual nationality. But they'd introduced an exemption that if you were married to a Brit, you could. So I thought, OK, I'm, I'm going to do it now. I'm going to pay the, the vast sums of money to do it. Was it expensive? Yeah? It was £1,500 altogether. Uh, so um, in the process of it, it was very complicated, but one of the prerequisites was to get a permanent residence document. And I ended up getting refused for that on a technicality. And that actually sort of hit the media at the time. And it catapulted me into realising how the Home Office 
treats sort of both non-EU citizens and EU citizens. My eyes were completely opened by by what people have to deal with. I mean, we were lucky that we just had this rights-based framework to be here. But now that everybody has to interface with, with the Home Office, and that's actually what led me to join the 3 million. I was very lucky that my husband was extremely supportive of all this. He felt upset about it as well. He did get a little bit tired after like a year and a half of me raging every single day about it. I've eventually accepted it, but he has been supportive all the way through. I can't quite imagine how the relationship would have sustained if, for example, he'd been a Leave voter. I'm, I'm not trying to be partisan here, but I think the lack of support would have been really, really difficult. That's a good point, Emma. Do you think it's possible that relationships would survive if they voted the opposite way in the referendum? I guess you'd need to be a much more forgiving, empathetic and understanding person than I am, because I would have really struggled, I think. I mean, I don't know. I think it's quite tricky to date across quite fundamental, principled political divisions and differences. I think I think that's very tricky. People do manage it. There are people out there who sort of manage to live a life where maybe they don't talk about the things that they disagree fundamentally on or they accept that they have enough in common that that's not a deal breaker. For me, it would be, I confess, it would be an absolute deal breaker. Marina, is there any evidence that relationships, long-term relationships, broke up after 2016 between Brits and Europeans? I don't know any evidence of that, but obviously I assume that if, as they mentioned, if people have different political positions, particularly in such a salient issue like the EU referendum, that would have strained any relationship. But I assume it will be the same if of relationships, maybe the one is voting Labour and the other is voting Conservative. But it's true that nowadays in British politics, the referendum is a, a crucial dividing issue. Most research points that many European citizens felt that they have been more discriminated in general by the general population. Um, they feel less welcome, but this is more about their, how they feel in the UK rather than their personal relationships. So maybe there were some cases, but um, probably, as they mentioned, it's, it's likely that many UK citizens that marry uh, EU nationals, they, they didn't both leave precisely because of their personal relationships. Do you think, Marina, staying with you, that people in continental Europe, and I'm not including Ireland because that's a different legal relationship, feel even now, five and a half years after the referendum, feel less welcome in Britain? They certainly feel that traveling here is way more difficult. Before anyone from the rest of Europe could move here easily, just settle for work, study here and pay the same fees as UK nationals. And now this all has changed. At the beginning, as we know from the newspapers, people were still not aware of these different rules. And some people have different uh, negative experiences with the, in the border trying to enter and learning. they were not totally aware that the, the rules have completely changed in the sense now EU citizens are subject to the same rule as non-EU citizens. So I don't know if less welcome, but for sure it's not as easy a destination to work or to come to live as it was before. Monique, do you think all these thousands, hundreds of thousands of transnational relationships, do you think they will bubble up from below to policymakers in future, maybe not now, but in future, to soften the relationship between the two unions or the two administrations? Well, that would be great. Certainly in our group, we see a lot of people who have 
become very, very motivated to get more involved with politics. We have several people in our Young Europeans network who have now stood for and been elected as councillors, who I think would have great ambitions to eventually go into parliamentary politics as well. And yeah, it would be great if ultimately things are softened because just like Marina said, we see a lot of people feeling very unwelcome. So even people who do actually already have status, because the status is a digital only status, we have had countless examples of people not being able to prove it at the border because, you know, if you renew your passport, you're supposed to update it. These updates can take months. And so people turn up at the border having done everything they've needed to do and they still face a really unfriendly border guard. I mean, it's a bit luck of the draw. Some of them are great. Some of them are really quite hostile. And we've had several reports of people saying, you know, the treatment I received at the border, even though I've lived in the UK for 20 years, it's enough to make me want to now up sticks and leave. I'm so fed up. Well, Emma, do you think it's possible that Europeans who either live in Britain or lived in Britain or have access or settled status, wherever it is, could become a kind of an ethnic group like British Asians or Afro-Caribbeans or something, that they would be categorized in such a way, not necessarily in statistical reasons, but they might identify themselves as British Europeans? That's an interesting one. It's such a diverse group, isn't it, that it's quite hard to imagine how that would happen. I think the Caribbeans would say the same, and I think the British Asians would say the same as well. Do they indeed... um, the question then is, do they in fact identify as a group in the same way? I don't know. Drawing on my personal experience, I wouldn't say that my husband or my sister's boyfriend, who's Italian and lives in the UK, sort of consider themselves as an ethnic group. No, I don't think so. But maybe over time that will shift. All right. Yeah, I just wonder whether in 10 years' time that might be an issue. Marina, where have people mostly settled from continental Europe when they've moved to Britain? I mean, the obvious consideration is they've lived in the cities, obviously London, Manchester, Birmingham, etc. Is that true? And where else have they tended to settle? Yeah, the patterns of settlement are slightly different to non-EU migrants. So non-EU migrants, they are more concentrated in London. But EU migrants, especially, they start, like, let's say, settling other areas that were not traditional migration destinations, like in Northern England, East of England. So they are, like, let's say, more evenly spread across England compared to non-EU migrants that they tend to concentrate in London. I would also like to comment on the issue that you just raised about the, the ethnic group, whether Europeans were likely to consider themselves an ethnic group. I think they're quite difficult because many of them, they tend to associate to other co-nationals, so people from the same nationality. But also in the future, so for example, the children of these people, it's less likely because at least in the UK and in most European countries, ethnicity also is perceived also like as a racialized category, unfortunately. So at the end, many people, uh, probably the second generation of children of migrants, they, they will just be as other bits because they look the same and they won't probably have the same levels of discrimination that Asian minorities or Caribbean people face, even though they might be like their grandparents may might have been from the Caribbean, but they themselves are even born British. Monique, do your children consider themselves Anglo-Dutch or British-British? And who do they shout for if the Netherlands plays 
England? Slightly mixed. I think one of them is just British through and through. The other one would also consider themselves British, but probably has expressed a lot more interest in the Dutch side of their heritage. They've expressed an interest to go and study at some point or work in the Netherlands to learn the language because unfortunately due to long story I didn't actually manage to teach them both to be dual language. I had good reasons honestly speech therapists and all sorts of things got in the way long story but yeah so slightly mixed but definitely more on the British side. And did you imbue them with their Dutchness because speaking from my own point of view I made it very clear to my two West London sons that they were Irish. And when it came to the rugby, green is good, white is evil. And they were very clear who they had to shout for. But that's my own personal brainwashing. But how about you? From the word go, did you say, you know, you meant our I did try very, very hard. I had all the, the Yip and Yannicka books and lots of other things, videos. I did lots of reading, lots of singing songs when they were little in Dutch. Dag vader, dag moeder, dag zus, Ursula. It's very good. They're forced to have orange as their favourite colour. In the Olympics, we did go and see the Dutch play, I think it was the Brits, at hockey. And that was very exciting, actually. And they were all very much supporting the Dutch. With the big orange finger. Yeah. What about you, Emma? Well. Who do they shout for in the rugby, France or England? To start with, they have absolutely no interest in any sport. So you're onto a loser here. But I mean, because actually my sons essentially grew up in Belgium. I mean, you know, they arrived in Belgium when they were two and four and they left when they were sort of, you know, 15 and 16. Actually, I'd say they identify if it for the World Cup, it was Belgium all the way. You know, I don't think either of them identify as French, though they are French speakers strongly. I think their, their affinities, their affections are more with, Belgium and the UK. That's a really interesting point, though, isn't it, Emma, the way they have British and French identity, but they could also have English and Belgian identity. And as you've said yourself, you know, they, they identified with Belgium in the European Championships and the World Cup. Is there much of that, Marina? Is there much of that kind of blurred identity? Certainly there will be in my household between Ireland, Estonia and England. Yeah, that's very common, especially among children that of migrants and also children that one parent be national, like the, the cases of, of the Monique or Emma. So that's very common. And actually, it's good, right? They integrate two different national identities. Sometimes the identity of the country where they live in predominates over the other, but that's not necessarily the case. And we can see that every day in the UK because there are many people whose parents are from other parts of, of the world and they perfectly or speak the language or they integrate their cultural habits. Uh, and, and that's perfectly possible. It doesn't mean that they have less, let's say, attachment to the British identity just because they also have another identity. Can I go back to you, Emma, with whether there'll be a cultural loss to Britain as a result of restrictions, i.e. school exchanges might suffer. Definitely, we know Erasmus has been scrapped and replaced with a different system, the Turing scheme. It was on this podcast earlier. Do you think they might lose out? I mean, Britain was already a monolingual country, but it's going to be even more so, one suspects. Oh, hugely, hugely. And actually, interesting, before we left Belgium, we went and when we were not sure what we were going to do, we were going around the um, the, and the Lycee in Brussels and they said it was impossible now to organise language exchanges with the UK because the UK just, there was no interest. It was impossible to organise a language exchange. So I actually think 
school exchanges unfortunately seem to be pretty much a thing of the past now. So language learning has not been particularly prioritised, far to the contrary. How does that manifest itself? If Britain does lose out culturally or linguistically, how does that manifest itself for the UK? And how, how will that you know, impact? It's a kind of intangible thing, isn't it? It's an entirely intangible thing. But I think when you lose that kind of outward looking engagement with your European neighbours, you are going to be losing out culturally. You're going to sort of lose a, a whole sort of network. It's sort of imponderable. You don't even know what you're losing because, because you've lost it in a way. It's stuff that happens through sort of happenstance and through sort of happy happy coincidence and connection. And, and those are the things you lose that are very difficult to quantify or even give a qualitative assessment of. But I feel that we are losing out enormously, yeah. Same question for you, Monique. How do you think Britain will be affected by a Brexit with far fewer Europeans in the country, far fewer coming in than before, linguistically, culturally, gastronomically, well, whatever? all of the above. But I think also it's got to have an effect on the soft power, I think, of Britain. And the whole sort of premise of global Britain, I think, is I can't reconcile it with shutting these doors. I just I don't understand it. I just feel that it's massively inflicted self-harm on the country. I'm a bit lost for words on this. <laughs> Do you think that continental Europe has been affected by Brexit, i.e. is continental Europe going to lose out culturally by not having Brits come over and share, you know, their experiences, not necessarily just the language, but the wider cultural perspective. There won't be as many Brits studying in, in France and Germany and Poland or wherever. For universities, definitely has had a big impact, Brexit, because at the end, there will be way many uh, new students coming to the UK and the other way around, especially coming to the UK, but particularly because of the fees, because they will be at the same price. They will have to pay the same as non-EU nationals, which are quite high. And yes, obviously for the, the higher education sector, the, the impact has been massive in the UK. Other countries, I mean, there are various impacts, obviously, and we can see we've been in the economy, obviously, because the, it has been disrupted, the whole change in the commerce. and But it's difficult to, obviously, depends on the country. Not all countries of Europe have the same relationship, close relationship with the UK in terms of uh, trade. Okay. Do you think that love conquers all, Marina, in the sense that Romeo and Juliet, warring tribes, etc., etc., but they had a very strong, deep love, or are we in an age or social media where people put themselves into camps and put themselves into silos? And I'll be bringing the same question to Emma and to Monique. But what, what's your own gut feeling? Well, in this case, uh, the research I know is that people tend to partner with people that are similar to themselves. So it's likely that, as I think Monique mentioned earlier, um, Emma too, that if you are, for example, in the case of British politics, if you are European nationalist, it's unlikely that you're going to date someone that is both leave, because we tend to, and that's what research shows, we tend to partner with people that are similar to us in our ideological orientations, values, etc. Emma, love conquers all. Well, that's a nice idea. I mean, I'm not sure Romeo and Juliet is the cheeriest example. It didn't end very well for them. Not ideal. No, no. I think the thing that I'd be looking for as a partner at any time is that sort of cultural openness, curiosity of being interested in, in other people and in other cultures. So I would always struggle, I think, getting into a relationship with someone whose interest is to close that down and have a, a narrower 
sort of more insular approach. So uh, I don't think I, I don't think I'm in the love conquers all category now. Monique. Well, I think love conquers a lot, but I think it does also depend on opportunities. So I think the fact that like there is no more Erasmus and far fewer exchanges, it reduces the opportunities as well. I mean, I fell in love here because I lived here for a while and I met lots of Brits. So if you shut down all those opportunities, I think there will be fewer EU-UK couples potentially in future. And also, I have to sort of say the Home Office conquers love in, in a lot of cases because, you know, I, I kind of want to almost say to British children, luckily mine are dual nationals, but sort of say, whatever you do, don't fall in love with someone foreign because you've no idea the amount of difficulty you're going to face. And I mean, at three million, we're getting absolutely regular reports now of families split through, you know, even people who do have status, one half will be trapped abroad because of bureaucratic issues to do with with expired biometric cards. People who are trying to be reunited and go through the family permit route are facing delays of like six to 12 months just to get a family permit to be allowed to come here to make that application. So I think the Home Office does quite a lot to put pay to love conquering all. Sorry to end on a pessimistic note there. The moral of the story is do your research before you fall madly in love. Well, that brings to a close our podcast today. I want to thank all our guests for a wonderful discussion. Robert Wright from the Financial Times, Monique Hawkins from the Three Million Group, Marina Fernandez-Reno is with the Migration Observatory at Oxford, and Emma Beddington, the writer and columnist with The Guardian. Remember to subscribe to the London Calling EU podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And um, that way it'll pop into your inbox when we do a new one, which we will be doing in a few short weeks. But from us, from all of us, ciao for now.